0: Ezekiel chapter 25, I'll be starting from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel, when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, therefore behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit, and they shall drink your milk. I will make rubber a pasture for camels and ammon, a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations." And I will cut you off from the peoples and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier the glory of the country, Beth, Jeshimoth, Moth, Baal, Mion, and Kareathim. I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the East as a possession, that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgment upon Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate. From Teman even to Dadan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the sea coast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes then they will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. The second reading comes from chapter 28 verse 1 to 10. Ezekiel chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seed of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and you have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas." Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God, in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God.
1: morning to everyone here today. Uh, great to see all the faces here. Lots. It's, I think this is the first time. I've seen the second service almost pretty much full uh, so well done. Uh, if you're still live streaming and tuning into live stream here, there are still a few seats. Uh, so please be encouraged to, to make your way back. We can be at 100% capacity with ticketed allocated seating. So um, make your way in. A couple of other quick announcements before we begin. Uh, firstly, um, please pray uh, for next weekend and the weekend after that. Uh, next weekend, uh, in the first service, if you uh, come to the first service, there'll be a small chunk of people missing. That'll be the teens. Uh, they're going away on their salt camp and so we're really looking forward to that uh, we were hoping to plan one last year but obviously because of the pandemic that didn't happen uh, so we're looking forward to uh, yeah uh, coming together again for next weekend so that will be happening on Friday through to Sunday afternoon um, we're joining forces with Cooper's Plains Evangelical Church our sister church over there on the south side uh, and their youth group are going to combine with ours uh, for the camp pray for Darius. Uh, many of you know Darius, our ministry trainee here. He's going to be giving uh, two of the talks over the weekend. It's his first time ever preaching. Uh, and so I said, why don't, why don't you do it in front of teens and do it twice? So he's uh, he's, he's done a remarkable job in, pre- in preparation. Uh, so please pray with him um, and for him as he speaks over the weekend. Uh, the weekend after that, there's going to be a bigger chunk of people here missing and in the first service as well. We have our young workers retreat. Uh, And so I'll be speaking at that and looking forward to spending some time there with my family, with the Clayers and Sunday Wifers who are working um, and working through uh, what the Bible says about work, rest and play. So that's going to be an exciting weekend as well, uh, the weekend after that. Weekend after that, the October long weekend, I'm on leave so you won't see me for three weeks. Uh, I will be back um, at our combined service and I'm looking forward to the commissioning of Randy Chan uh, as our third pastor. And looking forward to seeing everyone uh, together in one space, uh, like we did back in Easter. So, uh, lots to give thanks for, lots to pray for. Um, please continue also pray that the recent COVID cluster on the south side there just kind of uh, goes quiet. That'll be really good. Uh, we're not exactly sure what to do if um, we get bad news today. I should have checked a bit earlier. Oh well. Uh, let me pray, however, for now, uh, for today as we come to this word uh, here. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, we give you thanks that you speak to us through it. And though sometimes your word seems foreign to us, though sometimes your word seems to deal with subject matters that are completely beyond our realm of uh, practical living, we ask that you'll help continue to speak to us, help us to see that this word today is deeply and profoundly practical. And we pray too, Father, that you'd bless us by your Spirit. As we take uh, our big sweep of this uh, passage today, as we look at these chapters, we ask that you'll sustain us, help us to uh, follow the links, help us to uh, see all that is happening, uh, and help me, by your Spirit, to speak clearly from this as I ought. And Father, we pray all of this for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Followers of Jesus Christ live in a hostile world. A few weeks ago, the United States of Australia, the United States of America pulled out all of their soldiers from Afghanistan. And in the chaos that ensued, Christians and pastors in, in, in Afghanistan recognized the deep trouble that they were in. Most of them went into hiding, in the, with the Taliban clearly and vocally searching for them. Now, it doesn't take too much imagination to know, that they would most likely lose their lives if they were ever captured. In other places, I have a few missionary friends, some who graduated from Bible college with me at the same time as me, uh, who have come back to Australia over the last few years but have been unable to return to their field, their mission field. And that's not simply because of the shutdown and the pandemic, but it's been also because of the increasing persecution and the tightening of restrictions on Christian workers. Some of us recently heard the news that fellow Christians in areas where my friends would have been, they've heard the news that Christians in those areas were interrogated at length by police, a clear threat to the openness of their faith and the gospel in their community. Now, if it's not the direct persecution of the church from our world, there are other dangers as well. See in Australia here, maybe even in Singapore too, for most of us. I think it's fair to say that we're not in any physical danger when we gather. Some might argue that our religious liberties are being eroded and there might be some truth to that. But the bigger danger that I see in our world today, the world that we are living in here, particularly in Brisbane, is not only a world that is hostile to Christian morals and values, but is at the same time utterly seducing. Wealth and money uh, massive lures. I heard recently, in some YouTube video I was watching, uh, which was describing the, uh, the economy of Australia. Uh, and the YouTuber made this big claim, backed up with a couple of um, uh, footnotes, that Australia per capita is one of the wealthiest nations in the world. I had to sit back and think about that for a moment. I thought, well actually, it is true. We live in a massively wealthy world. And because of that, When we live in this world, you start to feel the seduction of that wealth. When you start working after you've graduated, the lure of home ownership comes, of investments, of upgrading the car and living a comfortable lifestyle. And all of that takes commitment and energy. I know that in Singapore, there is a big emphasis on being in a meritocratic society, a society where you work hard to earn your way up the social and economic ladder. And that also takes a lot of energy and commitment. And a lot of this seduction plays on our fears or even just simply our sinful desires. But the end result is always the same. We become less willing to put out our necks to witness and stand up for Jesus. And we become less committed to church and serving his kingdom because we're so caught up in the world's uh, wealth. And when our world isn't seducing us, our sinful nature is opening ourselves up to being deceived We form alliances in our lives with the things that give us safety and security, functional saviors, idols that are the actual foundation of our lives. Now all of this to say that we live in a hostile world, a world that isn't conducive to following Jesus easily, a world that makes it hard to follow Jesus, sometimes very hard, sometimes at the cost of the life of a believer. Now, the world of Israel at the time of Ezekiel was a hostile world as well. Surrounded, surrounding Israel were nations that wanted them gone. And when Israel wasn't struggling with these external forces working against them, there were also major issues with sinful forces working within, of their sinful nature being seduced by the wealth of the world, of, uh, 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 of, being, uh, of wanting to be, uh, align themselves with deceptive allies, assisting their rebellion against God and his laws. And so what, would God, what was God going to do about it? So over the past seven weeks, as we've been looking through the book of Ezekiel, we've been hearing what God is going to do about all of that. God was going to bring judgment upon his people for their wickedness and rebellion. But, you know, it's not as though all of Israel's problems were internal. Sure, a lot of them were. But there were the outsiders, those nations surrounding Israel that made life very difficult. What was God going to do about them? Well, in today's passage, we find out. So we come to chapters 25 to 32 after a few weeks of focusing in on just one chapter in a particular block. Today we're going to take a quick sweep through these chapters together. So please keep your Bibles open there to Ezekiel 25 as we move through it. Now chapters 25 to 32 form what most commentators call the second major block or the second major section in the book of Ezekiel. The first section is chapters 1 to 24, which focuses primarily on the sin and judgment of Israel. Now here in our chapter, the our chapters, the focus shifts. It shifts from judgment on Israel to judgment on the nations surrounding Israel and it finishes with the terrible news of the fall of Jerusalem in chapter 33. This then afterwards begins the third major section of the book, the section of hope. So seven weeks into the sermon series, eight weeks today. Uh, If you're feeling like it's been a long series, hold on, hold on to it, cling on, we're nearly there. Uh, Just this week and one more week to go, it's around the corner. Uh, But we're going to get there. Uh, But before we get into our text, let's get a bit oriented as well as to who is who and what's going on. So up on the screen now is a a map of Israel uh, at roughly the time of uh, Ezekiel. Uh, Highlighted there in the green, you can see Israel and Judah. If you don't know why there are two separate countries or nations there, long story short, the previously united uh, country of Israel has split into two. Uh, Israel to the north, Judah to the, excuse me, Judah to the south, both of whom represent God's people just in different kind of sections and phases. Uh, but for now, whenever we hear about Israel or Judah, uh, we're thinking about the people as a, as a unit. So we're going to begin in our passage with a, a country called Ammon, which is uh, to their east. Uh, Then the passage moves down south, and it moves clockwise around, so we get to Moab. Uh, It will then focus on Edom. It will take a swing to the west in Philistia, uh, head up north to the city of Tyre, and then there's a brief mention there uh, about Sidon, which is just a little bit further north, and then it will swing all the way back down again uh, to Egypt, and that's kind of the journey that we're on today. So, welcome to this tour of the Middle East. Buckle up, we're about to head into it. Uh, We begin in chapter 25, which is a chapter focusing on Ammon, Moab, and Serser as the hill country of Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Ammon, the the target sites fall on Ammon first. They draw the attention of God because they gloated and they laughed at the destruction of the temple. It was a gloating and laughter, however, that was deeply rooted in deep hatred against Israel. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me again to chapter 25 and read with me verses 6 to 7. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel, therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations, and I will cut you off from the peoples and make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you, and then you will know that I am the Lord. You see that there, that they didn't just laugh at Israel, they laughed with malice. They wanted this, they yearned for Israel's destruction. They laughed with this evil intent. And so because of that, God would bring them down. Their laughter would turn into mourning. God would destroy them. God's sight then moves down to Moab and Sarah. If you don't remember, uh, Ammon and Moab were the very long distant relatives of Israel. Ammon, uh, Ammon and Moab were the children of the incestuous relationship uh, between Abraham's cousin Lot and his daughters, Lot's daughters. You can read about that fun story in Genesis 19. Moab gets attention for what they say in verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Now, in some sense, this is actually true. Judah did become like the other nations in their sin and their wickedness. But the words here from Moab carry this deeper sense of blasphemy. They were, in effect, saying, Judah's fall shows that their covenant relationship with Yahweh is rubbish. Rubbish people, rubbish God. And so God would answer that by putting them in the rubbish, along with Ammon, total destruction coming their way. Edom, uh, focus moves to them. They get uh, the treatment next. Edom, uh, if you would remember too, were the closer cousins to Israel. Israel were the children of Jacob, and Edom were the children of Esau, Jacob's brother. So what did Edom do? Have a look at verse 12. They acted revengefully against the house of Judah. Now, this accusation is actually more deeply fleshed out in the prophet Obadiah. So if you go to his book, you'll see that that's actually purely a prophecy against Edom. But there we learn uh, and we find out what what it was that Edom did. Edom helped and assisted Babylon in the destruction of Israel. They seized Judah's wealth. They cut, off fleeing, uh, they cut down fleeing fugitives and they handed survivors over to Babylon. So God would make Edom a desolate wasteland in return. Philistia to the west then gets the final attention in this chapter. Uh, Philistia, the home to the Philistines. This is a very long-running battle between them. Right? You know, remember Goliath, the Philistine versus David. This is going all the way back even further than that. See, not only did they act also revengefully, but they did so out of that old, old hostility. Uh, Verse 15 puts it, a never-ending enmity. So because of this long-held grudge and the joy that they took in the destruction of Jerusalem because of that that grudge, God would bring justice upon them as well. So here you have, in this short little chapter, four countries in particular who persecuted God's people in various ways. And here was God declaring that he would personally take vengeance upon them. But you notice the little phrase that keeps coming up at the end of every paragraph in this chapter. After the judgment is announced on each of these nations, you notice this line or a variation on the line right at the end. And it goes something like this. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Now, that little phrase comes up again and again, and it's a phrase that comes up throughout the entire book of Ezekiel. But here in chapters 25 to 32, it comes up 19 times. Who is the you spoken about there? Who is the they? Who who is the they who will know that Yahweh is Lord? Let me put something to you and suggest that it's very unlikely to be the nations that are addressed. It's unlikely to be Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Uh, Ezekiel was not some United Nations chief representative uh, preaching at an international symposium uh, with all the nations uh, in uh, uh, attendance, uh, raining down this prophecy on these nations. That's not what's happening here. See, it was actually very rare for a prophet's message to be sent directly to the nation that was being condemned. The one, I think, the only exception to this was in Jeremiah 51, where you actually see Jeremiah write this prophecy down, roll it up on a scroll, give it to a servant, and say to the servant, take that to Babylon. That's the only time we see something like this. See, the most likely audience of chapters 25 to 32 were the exiles, the Israelites, So why address these nations when you're not actually talking to them? And the answer comes, uh, the answer is that these prophecies against Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia, and Tyre, and Egypt, they're for the benefit of Israel. You see, for 24 chapters, we've read about the wicked and evil sin of Israel. They They rebelled against God in profoundly disgusting and evil ways. And so God would keep his covenant with them, though they broke it. He, he would rain down curses and judgment, his part of the covenant, uh, on them for their, for their sins. You see, his people may be rebellious and sinful, but they are still his people. He will deal with his wayward children. He will discipline and punish them for rejecting him. But he will also deal with anyone who has hurt them. You see, in this passage, God goes from disciplining his children to defending them. He is a loving father, restless to protect his beloved people. And when he brings that judgment upon them, his children will know that Yahweh is Lord, that Yahweh is their God. Now each of these nations is treated very quickly, bam, 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 all done. But in chapters 26 through to 32, great attention is given to two other particular enemies of Israel, Tyre and Egypt. In chapters 26 to 28, we got a special focus on Tyre. Remember, Tyre was that little city north of Israel, a port city, which was a central hub of activity and trade. So what does God have against them? In chapter 26, verses 1 to 6, we read that they too gloated over the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. But more than that... They took, also took glee in the fact that it would become an economic boon for them. So you get your Bibles there? Have a look at chapter 26, verse 2 to 3. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha! The gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up, way, as brings up its waves. See, they saw the destruction and they were clapping their hands in delight and then they were rubbing them together in anticipation of all the money that would now be rolling into their city. And so God goes on to warn them in, in verses 7 to 21 of chapter 26 that because of this attitude, because of this pride, that Babylon would be raised up to destroy them as judgment, a destruction that will be so devastating that it will be a devastating warning to all the coastland inhabitants. What God is going to do to them, everyone else is going to hear. Have a look at uh, chapter 26, verse 15 to 16. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will not the coastland shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan, when slaughter is made in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. See that there. The destruction of Tyre will be a warning for everyone else. Then in chapter 27, God focuses in on another specific sin that earns their destruction and judgment, the sin of pride. Listen to what they say of themselves. Verse 3 to 4, chapter 27. O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. Well, this is like you know, when you congratulate yourself for being so beautiful. Have you ever done that? <laughs> Looked in the mirror. <laughs> this is this is like those Instagram models who post up selfies of them looking impossibly gorgeous and uh, beautiful with the caption "Woke up like this," SMH. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of this disgusting aggrandizement. It's prideful boasting. And then, you know, they go on to hashtag all their sponsors uh, and you get this crazy list. Like, you know, their caption was only three words long, but then they've got, you know, a a paragraph full of sponsors. You actually kind of see the same thing in chapter 27, verses 4 to 25. Your Bible's there. You glance over it. It's this very long list of artisan craft makers who have helped to create the beauty of Tyre. You've got beautiful products like verse 6, the oaks of Bashan to make their oars. Actually, chapter 27 functions in this way, kind of saying that uh, God compares Tyre to a merchant ship. And so he says, look at all the beauty of that you have. Verse 6, the oaks of Bashan to make your oars. Verse 7, embroidered linen from Egypt for your boat sails. Verse 12, you got silver and iron and tin from Tarshish. Verse 14, horses and mules from beth Togoma And on and on and on and on and on. It's this massive long list, lots and lots of trading partners and artisanal products to make Tyre a beautiful city. Why is there so much? There is so much detail about their beauty. I think one of the reasons is to remind Israel. Do you remember this city? It was beautiful, it was seductively beautiful. How seductive were their riches and their wealth? Remember at one time, Israel was one of the wealthiest nations. Remember that Solomon, in Solomon's time, he made silver so plentiful that it actually lost its value. It became common. Riches are seductive. I'm not the richest person in the world, the richest person that I know, but I know the lure of artisanal objects, specially sourced meats for the barbecue specially crafted items that I can display at home. How about yourself? And then you hit chapter 27, verses 26 to 36, which is a lament song for Tyre, lamenting the loss of her goods. It, hit, it hits hard because of the seductive beauty, which is now gone. And it all comes to head in chapter 28, where God takes aim at the king of Tyre, Actually, he gets referred to as a prince and a king. It's a little bit confusing, but it's probably referring to the same person who goes by the, same, by the two titles. Here in chapter 28, we have, we have pride in full expression, the reason why Tyre is brought down and judged. Have a look at chapter 28 again, uh, verses 1 to 2. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Now here, here we basically get the definition of sinful pride, the pride that God hates. See, there, there is a pride, a different sort of pride. You can have a pride of accomplishments or you know if you're proud of your children and uh, and and you know pride you take pride in these sorts of things that kind of feeling of you know well done you did a go, a good job that kind of pride that's a different sort of pride the pride that we're talking about here the pride that god hates is the pride of self exaltation the pride of raising yourself above god you see it there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28. You said, I am a God. You made your heart like the heart of a God. You get more of the description of this king in verses 11 to 19. Uh, read with me verses 11 to 15 in particular. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection. Full of wisdom and beauty, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. There's some interesting language that's going on here. Uh, Language that has caused quite a few Christians in the past to scratch their heads and wonder if God isn't speaking some deeper truths at a deeper level. Some thinking that God is now speaking about Satan's fall from grace. I think that's actually unlikely. Uh, it, it would be a little bit weird to drop into this picture from the past as he's judging uh, Tyre. What is more likely happening here is that God is using a metaphor. In the same way that he described Tyre as this beautiful merchant ship in chapter 27, now here he uses a different metaphor to speak of how, won- how wonderful and how beautiful was the king of Tyre. Right? God is saying that he was so beautiful, he was like the head of all the guardian angels in the Garden of Eden. He was so beautiful, even in God's eyes. There's a sense that as you read that description in verse 11, 15, that God is impressed. The king's beauty mirrors, it seems, the wealth and the beauty of his city. But then at the end there of verse 15, it changes. God spots violence in their midst. Verse 17, their heart become, became proud because of their beauty. Their wisdom corrupted because of their splendor. And so God will judge them, casting them to the ground fire, coming out to consume them until, in verse 19, they will look so ghastly that everyone who looks upon them will be appalled at the sight. They're going to, be, they're going to look at Tyre and they're going to cover their mouths and think, what happened? It will be an appalling sight. This fall from such a height to such a depth. It reminds me a little bit of Lance Armstrong. You may not uh, be the biggest fan of the sport of cycling, but I'm sure that most of us have heard of the name of Lance Armstrong. For a time there, Armstrong was a hero to the world. See, not only did he win the world's toughest cycling competition, the Tour de France, he did it seven years in a row. He did it seven years in a row after beating testicular cancer. He was the poster child for cancer survivors. If anyone if, if someone like Lance Armstrong could go through cancer and survive, then you could do anything you put your mind and your heart to. That was until he was outed as a cheat, caught in a blood doping scandal, and if I can say in my opinion, a very clever blood doping scandal, that's for another time. All of his achievements were then wiped from the record books. His endorsements all left him in one day. There's a story that goes that he was getting, uh, after the news broke about his cheating, and when it became very clear that he was a cheat, there was this one day where he got phone call after phone call from all his sponsors, and he lost $75 million in one day. I can't imagine what $75 million looks like in my bank account, let alone to lose it all in one day. He's been banned from all competitors' sport for life. And now when people look at him, They're appalled. All they can think about was his great heights and how far he's fallen. That dizzying heights to being appalled at the sight, the king of Tyre would fall in the same way. Now, the eyes of God's judgment moved from Tyre down to the south to Egypt. Chapters 29 to 32 follow a very similar pattern and have very similar themes to Tyre. So we're not going to tease it out in the uh, the same length of detail. Uh, But first, you notice in chapters 29 to 30, there's a general prophecy against Egypt. And then in 31 to 32, there is a specific lament and prophecy against the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember, it was Egypt who deceived Israel remember it was Israel who went to them to try and form an alliance against Babylon. Remember Zedekiah from a few weeks ago, the last king of Judah he went to them for help and Egypt replied, sure thing bro with our forces combined we can beat Babylon I think that's the message translation of the Egyptian conversation maybe I don't know, might have gone something like that but then when the armies marched, when the Babylonian army marched on Jerusalem Egypt was there and they turned and they turned their backs, and they went home. They had deceived Israel. It was a false and deceptive alliance. In chapter 26, uh, 29, verses 67, Egypt uh, compared to a reed that Israel leaned on. It then snapped, causing massive injuries to Israel. Right? You think if I could think of a comparison today, then I think Egypt would be uh, like a handrail, Israel thought that it was safe, that they could trust her, they could lean on her for support. But then the handrail gave way so easily, Israel fell down, smashing her head on the ground. No amount of physio or OT help could uh, could help her. So like the other nations before them, judgment would fall on Egypt. And again, God says that at the end of chapter 29, that Babylon would be used by God as his destructive judgment. Then in chapters 31 and 32, again, the beauty of Pharaoh is marveled at. Uh, He's compared to Assyria, that once big and powerful nation, like a big tree planted and nourished and having grown massive. It is a splendor. Have a look at this uh, chapter 31, verses 2 to 3. Chapter 31, verses 2 to 3. Have a look at the, the language here of this kind of reveling in the splendor of the beauty of Pharaoh. Son of man Say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, "Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and a towering height; its top among the clouds." Jump down to verse eight. The cedars, in, uh, yep, verses eight to nine. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was equal was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Now that is some seriously high praise. The trees in Eden envied the beauty of Pharaoh and Egypt. But the same heart disease in Tyre inflicts Pharaoh as well, pride. Have a look at verses 10 to 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He will surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. It's like the other nations before, like the king of Tyre, Egypt and Pharaoh will face God's judgment destruction, and being brought low will be their imminent future. So in these chapters, you can see God defending his people, judging the nations who have persecuted them, seduced them with their wealth, or deceived them. The justice of God that we've encountered so clearly over the past few weeks is a justice that extends beyond the borders and boundaries of Israel. They extend to all who refuse to acknowledge his sovereignty. This justice comforts God's people as well, though. God does not take lightly the persecution or stumbling of his people. He, his people may be wayward and rebellious, but they are his people. And all of this justice and judgment further highlights that Yahweh truly is Lord of all. Now, the judgment on Tyre and Egypt bring to our attention, especially how easy and dangerous it is to be seduced and deceived away from faithfulness to God. And leading the way were two kings filled with pride. The heart their hearts exalted themselves above God, mere humans who believed that they were higher, stronger, smarter than the God of the universe. But for all their attractiveness, they failed to benefit Israel in any way. Their destruction is prophesied and it will be for one express purpose, that everyone will know that Yahweh is Lord. So how do we avoid being seduced or deceived with the empty promises of the princes and the kings of this world? If we're going to avoid it, then we need to follow another king. The king who was not arrogant or proud. The king who did not count equality with God something to be grasped for. The one who humbled himself, who took on the form of a servant. A king who was just like us, human in every way, and who continued to humble himself, not just as a servant, but in obedience to his father, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our king did not exalt himself. His journey is a journey downwards in humility. But in his obedience, there is exaltation. It was God, his Father, who exalted him after his obedience to death to the highest place, giving him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and everyone will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the king that we are to follow, if we are to avoid the seduction and deceptiveness of our world. Yet followers of Jesus will not escape persecution. Like Israel's experience, God's people today continue to find it a challenge to follow Jesus, to follow God. Persecution of the church is wide. Communism in parts of Asia where the church is constantly oppressed and cracked down upon, pastors imprisoned, families torn apart. Christians in the Middle East who face imprisonment, beatings, and even death for converting away from Islam. And there is the increasing pressure for believers in the West to be heard and stand firm in their moral convictions. But all of this is, it's not new. There's nothing new here. The entire New Testament seems to expect it. Jesus himself seems to expect it. John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. You see that? Jesus expected it. But he also promised this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Following Jesus is hard. It can be very easy to be overcome by persecution, seduction or deception. We follow one who was not overcome by all of that. We follow the one who has overcome the world. The king of Tyre and Egypt couldn't overcome God's judgment. Our king has overcome the world. And following Jesus will never return to us empty. And while in this life there may be hardship and persecution, in this life there will be division in families and friendships because of Jesus, there is a promise one day that Jesus will return and he will avenge his people. The judgment of the nations in today's passage foreshadows the great day of judgment when everyone from history's beginning to end will come before his throne and where in his divine sovereignty he will recall every moment of blood shed for Christ, every beating taken for Christ, every harsh word received for Christ. And all of that will be remembered and recounted on that great day of judgment and God's people will be vindicated. And so what do we do in the meantime? What do we do then? What do we do with the persecution believers face in the world today? What should our attitude and our stance be when we face hardship for living for Jesus? Now part of the answer to that is found in the book of Revelation, which echoes some of the things we've even heard here today. A few months ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 6, and there in chapter uh, 6, the martyrs who have died for Christ, they're crying out to God, how long, O Lord, will it take to avenge our blood? And this is what is said. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how holy and holy, and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth and they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow saints and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been do you notice there that God responds to the question by saying you need to be patient because there is still more blood to be shed. There is still more witnessing for Christ that will end in the death of believers. That's a harsh reality. Why hasn't Jesus returned just yet? Part of that answer is because there is more blood to be shed by Christians who are witnessing and testifying to Christ. But there is, even though that's a harsh reality that comes with the promise that God will avenge their blood. Now, God's promises are as good as kept. His word does not fail. And so if we can trust what he says, can we be patient while we wait? Can we patiently endure evil knowing that God will repay it? and can we endure with the confidence that God is the one who is better placed to deal with it when the time comes in terms of the persecuted church globally all right if you haven't you know gone to the websites like barnabas fund or voice of the martyrs you know do that sign up to their newsletter so you get regular updates on what is happening in the persecuted church globally when we hear when we get that news we should be praying for them we should be asking God to help them, help our brothers and sisters endure, that they will have peace. We should, if we can, advocate for them, petitioning and asking governments to step in to protect our brothers and sisters. But when I look at my own situation for myself here in Brisbane, Australia, I'm not sure that there is a particular need for me to defend myself in any particularly strong way because I know that in the end God will do that for me. So, will I be patient in the face of the persecution I experience, and will I be faithful? Let's have a think about the theme of seduction for a second. Uh, Tyre was a, a wealthy city brought down because of its pride. Remember the wealth, the wealthy city, the wealthy state, which is a constant seduction for believers. Remember how there was so much detail painted about their riches. Because I think the same theme is picked up in Revelation 16 and 17. There a great prostitute is pictured, seducing the world with her wealth and her treasures. Everyone wanting a piece of her. And then when God comes in and brings her down in judgment, the world mourns. They don't mourn her loss. They mourn what they lose, the things that they lose when she is gone. The pride of wealth is seductive. Have you ever wondered why believers get so seduced into the health and wealth and prosperity gospel? Is it simply because, isn't it simply because wealth is so attractive to all of us? And then some fall into the trap that somehow God endorses that life as well? You know, there's a new form of the prosperity gospel today. That, you know that old stuff about you know God wants you to have a big rich bank account. God wants you to be physically healthy for the rest of your life. That's what is now on the hardcore end of the prosperity gospel. That's a fringe movement now. Now it's more about living your life to the fullest. Finding and reaching your fullest potential. Have enough faith and God will bless you to discover your true self. But again, isn't this just another form of seduction towards riches in life? Isn't this just another word from the world? Seduction towards wealth. Are we discerning enough and careful enough to spot this essentially false gospel? My attention was drawn to another form of world seduction this week uh, in an article posted online by a Christian friend back in Singapore. It was an article uh, written in an interview with the richest man in Asia and his wisdom for young people. And this was his message. The message was basically this. Don't hang out with people who are content with their lives. Hang out with people who are successful, who are driven, because that will rub off on you. I was like, okay. The fact that this advice comes from a multi-billionaire gives it so much more credibility as well. But why is it that a Christian was posting this up? Was it because they heard the seducing voice of the world in his words? The promise that you can improve your life, you can be more successful, you can be more wealthy if you would change who you hang out with. This billionaire was also suggesting to stop wasting time with people but always spend your time doing something useful and hanging out with rich people. How easy do you think it would be to hang out with him? And then we turn to the Gospels and I turn to the Gospels in the week and I read about Jesus hanging around with tax collectors and sinners and wasting so much time with them that he got accused of being just like them a glutton and a drunkard. Whose voice are you going to listen to? The voice of the billionaire or the voice of the one who actually owns everything in the universe? Whose name is exalted above every billionaire's name? Whose mindset are you going to adopt? Friends, don't be seduced by the wealth of this world because it will all one day be burned up. Finally, don't be deceived. Pharaoh deceived Israel. He offered them an alliance he wasn't willing to keep or back up. Israel trusted him, and it came back to bite them hard. And when you read through the Bible, it's interesting to notice how often Egypt is a fantasy for Israel. There's such an allure about the place. Even though it was a place of slavery, 400 years of slavery, there is just something about Egypt that constantly has the gaze of the Israelites. You can go all the way back to just Exodus chapter 16. This is one chapter after they've just been uh, released, after they've gone through the Red Sea. They walked on dry ground. They saw the 10 plagues. They survived all of that. They're two and a half months into wilderness, into the wilderness, and they're getting a little hungry. Their stomachs are growling. And then that hunger turns into hanger. You know? Ever been hangry? Well, you hungry angry? All right. And they, they're, hangin- they, they're hangry... And then they start to reminisce and they start to think of their pots full of meat and the bread that they had back in Egypt. Gosh, what a people. And then you fast forward through the centuries and you get to our chapter a few weeks ago where we were looking at Israel's alliance with Egypt against Babylon. And why did they do that? Was it not the fantasy of horses and chariots to be supplied by Egypt? But like all fantasies, they had to wake up one day and realize it was all a dream, and actually before them was a true and living nightmare as Babylon surrounded their city. Now, for us today, Egypt doesn't hold that same kind of literal deceptive power. For us, Egypt is a geographical location in the world. It has pyramids and a sphinx, and hopefully in a couple of years when international travel returns and we're all back to normal, we can maybe one day go there for a holiday. But have a think, what can deceive us away from worshipping the true and living God? A couple of weeks ago, we heard about this idea of functional saviours, this idea of the things that we actually put our hope and our trust and our security and our safety in. That might be a message worth revisiting for some of us. Now, where are we placing our trust? Maybe even in good things, but good things that squeeze out Jesus from the centre trusting of our security and safety and the wealth that we have saved up and accumulated, uh, the safety and security that we have in our relationships, our marriages, or the success of our families. How about attempting one, in, in particularly in our world now, in this current cultural moment? Uh, I, I wonder if it's a, a particularly American temptation, but then I often reflect that the temptations of the American church always seem to filter through to the, the global church at, in, at some point. It's the temptation towards political power that if you have the right political party in power, if you back the right political group, then they will help preserve the church. They will help preserve the Christian culture that we so yearn for and desire or want to come back to. You're placing your trust there to ensure the survival of the church. And I'm sure that believers across the world will eventually face this increasing temptation as well. But remember that any refuge apart from Jesus is delusional. It's a fantasy. Functional saviors will only ever disappoint. They promise big, but they will always fail to deliver. As we scan across these chapters, as we look upon the judgment that we've seen on these nations, we're being reminded again that everyone will be judged, that God does hate pride, But also God deals with the persecutors of those who persecute his people. He will deal with those who seduce his people away from fidelity to him. And he will deal with those who deceive his people to trusting them uh, and not in him and into their false alliances. So with all of this, let's pray and ask God to help us reflect on these areas in our own lives too. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. This word that warns us and reminds us. This word that shows us of how your judgment extends to all nations. Nations who have persecuted your people. This world that does seduce and deceive your people. That will all be judged. So we pray that you'll help us to see that. That we might stand firm under persecution but also that we would stand firm against the seduction of the world, against the deceptive lies of false alliances and functional saviors. Give us clarity with how we may have stumbled in these things in our own lives now. And pray, Father, help us to repent, to trust you alone. We pray this, that you'll do this work for your glory at work in us, and for our eternal joy secured in Jesus. Now we pray this in his most beautiful name. Amen.